We'll read this morning from John chapter 6, beginning in verse 60. We'll read through verse 69. John 6, 60 through 69. This is the word of God. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can understand it? And when Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, Does this offend you? What then, if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit, and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. And he said, Therefore I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Then Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. This is the second line of the Apostles' Creed. Each month on the first Sunday of the month, we partake of the Lord's Supper together, and when we do so, uh, we quote the Apostles' Creed together as a confession of our faith. This beloved statement of Christian belief has been a part of the practice of the church since the second century. And confessing it together reminds us not only of what we believe, but it reminds us that we stand together with the universal or Catholic, lowercase c, church down through the ages. These things we believe are not unique to us. We're not the first generation of Christians to confess these truths. They go back to the early church founded upon the doctrine and teaching of the apostles themselves. The creed has, as we saw last month, the Trinitarian shape to it. In other words, if it confesses our belief in one God who exists eternally in three distinct but unified subsistences, or to use the modern word, persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Latin word credo means I believe and traditionally precedes each statement regarding the members of the Trinity in the Apostles' Creed. And so last month we examined our belief in the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. This month we turn our attention to the Son, fully half of the Creed, six of the twelve statements in the Apostles' Creed are concerned with the person and work of the Son. And so we'll spend this morning and the next five months, the first Sunday of each month, examining what we believe about the person and work of Christ. This morning, we begin with this first statement regarding Jesus, which is really a statement of his identity. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. The his, of course, refers to the Father, about whom line one of the creed confesses our belief. Now, choosing a text uh, to exposit in relation to a summary or systematic statement like this is somewhat difficult. 
such statements in the creeds and confessions are not built on one text alone, but on many. Uh, they're summaries of what the Bible as a whole teaches on any particular subject. So uh, it's difficult to find one text that will help us fully comprehend any given line of the creed. But I think that this passage in John chapter 6 this morning will at least allow us uh, to address some of the main points in this statement. We believe. We believe in Jesus as the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah of Old Testament prophecy, the Holy One of God, as the Greek might be translated. We believe he is the only Son of the Father. Now that's interesting. Scripture at times calls us sons. So in what way is Jesus to be considered the only Son of the Father? And why is that important? We believe that as Christ, he is our Lord. But what does that mean? Is it good news that we have a Lord? Could conceivably be bad news to have a Lord in authority over you. But we believe that it is good news that Jesus is our Lord. As you can see, there's a lot packed into this brief statement. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. And that's the nature of creeds and confessions. They, they summarize the larger teaching of the Scripture into short, memorable, teachable phrases like this. And so uh, we're going to look this morning, hopefully, from this passage in John at several of these points in the creed, but not in the order that they're presented in the creed. Instead, we're going to take them in the order in which we take them in this text. And here's our, our main point that I want us to see this morning, is that our certain or sure belief in Christ as the eternal Son of God is the basis of our hope and our enjoyment in the grace of adoption by which we become sons of God. Now, our text this morning begins with a therefore, referring back to what has come before, really the whole chapter leading up to this, but primarily back to verse 22. Now, Jesus has been uh, teaching the multitude. He's in, engaged in his public ministry, and, and a, a large multitude has come to hear him teach. And in verses 1 through 14, he, he took pity on the multitude, and so he multiplied bread and fish, and he fed them. The crowd then follows him across the Sea of Galilee, and they find him in Capernaum. And Jesus rebukes them for their lack of spiritual interest. They are focused on the food. He fed them, and so they've come looking for another meal. He uses this opportunity to teach them concerning spiritual food from heaven telling them that the manna that their ancestors ate in the wilderness came down from heaven as bread from God, and that that manna was meant to point us forward to the true bread from heaven, who is Christ. He tells them that if they want everlasting life, if they, if they want to live after this life into eternity in the kingdom of God, then they will obtain it only by partaking of this spiritual bread, this spiritual nourishment that comes from feeding on him. And so he says in verse 51, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. Now the crowd makes the mistake 
of taking his words too literally. And they begin to quarrel over what this means. He wants us to eat his flesh. We're not cannibals. What is he talking about? But he insists that if they want everlasting life, if they want hope beyond this fleshly life, then they must eat his flesh and drink his blood. He doesn't mean this literally, of course, but they don't have eyes to see the spiritual truth that Christ is the only source of spiritual life in the same way that we eat physical food, bread, to sustain our physical life, if we would have true spiritual life, we must feast on Christ. And so when we get to verse 60, we see that the crowd here is struggling with what Christ has taught them. This is a a hard saying. Therefore, because of what he has said, that they must eat his flesh and drink his blood, therefore many of the disciples, this is the multitude, when they heard this said, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? Jesus then rebukes them again. If they're offended by his teaching, by the idea that he has come down from heaven, what will they think when they see it with their own eyes? When they see him ascending back into heaven on clouds of glory, how will they respond? They won't suddenly believe. Their hearts are hard. This is why they don't believe his words. They will likewise reject it even when they see it with their own eyes. The truth about Christ must be grasped spiritually, not carnally. He says in verse 63, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit, and they are life. If the Spirit doesn't renew your heart, you won't believe. You won't believe His words. You won't believe it if you see it with your own eyes. And Jesus knew that many of them would not believe. He knew that Judas would stay with him as part of the twelve for the course of his ministry, close to Christ, and yet did not believe and would ultimately betray him. And so he says to them in verse 65, And he said, Therefore I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. The Spirit must be at work in your heart. And at this point, the crowd just turns away. They've had enough. The 12 disciples remain with him, and so Jesus asked them if they want to leave as well. And Peter, you got to love Peter, Peter steps up as a spokesman for the 12, and, and he answers. And his answer is what we will examine in greater detail. It's found in verses 68 and 69. But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So the twelve, led by Peter, give this answer. But it's clear if we continue to read the gospel account that the twelve don't necessarily understand everything that Jesus is trying to say about who he is and what he will do, what it means that he will give his flesh for their life. They don't understand all the ins and outs of this, but they believe that he was speaking the words of truth, the truth of God, the truth that leads to everlasting life. So they had nowhere else to go. The truth of everlasting life couldn't be found apart from Jesus. And so they were resolved to to stay by his side rather than to turn away because they didn't understand something, to turn away because something was hard. 
They didn't want to go back to life as they knew it before. They knew there was something here, something that offered them hope for eternity. And I think this in itself is an example for us. We must believe that Christ is who he says he is. We must believe that he speaks the truth concerning God. But we don't have to understand every detail in order to follow him. We just have to believe that he is who he says he is, that he has done what he said he has done, that he has provided a way of escape for us. We have to cling to him in hope. We don't have to understand the fullness of biblical doctrine before we can be followers of Christ. If that was the case, none of us would be saved. None of us have a full and complete understanding of what Christ has taught. We can follow him with whatever light he has given us, always striving for a richer understanding of the depths of the grace of the truths of the gospel. So don't get discouraged if there are parts of the Bible that you don't understand, doctrines that seem difficult to you that you can't quite grasp, maybe some that you are offended by even. They don't make sense. Don't be discouraged by that. Instead, cling to Christ. Believe that he is the anointed one of God who offered himself as a sinless sacrifice in the place of sinners. Trust in his work and in his word and ask him, plead with him in prayer to give you a greater measure of the spirit to understand better the riches of the doctrines of the gospel. The first step that we see Peter taking in his confession here in verses 68 and 69 is to acknowledge Christ as Lord. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. This is the last step in the creed. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. What does it mean to confess Christ as our Lord? The idea of a Lord is not one that that we're that familiar with in our modern cultural consciousness. We're Americans, free men. We don't have lords. So this concept is a little foreign to us. But it wasn't to the people of the first century. They understood what it was to have a lord. It wasn't unfamiliar to the people of the 16th and 17th centuries when the Bible began to be translated into the common languages. They knew what he meant when when he called Christ Lord. Most men in that day had a Lord of one sort or another. And you can see some of the key aspects of what it means to have a Lord in Peter's confession. First, we see that as Lord, he is a provider for his people. The Lord provides them with goods that they need in order to live comfortably in his service. The Lord sees to the import of goods from other regions outside his domain. He provides employment for those who are under his care. He provides for them the necessities of life. And so the disciples acknowledge that they at least understood this much. Christ provides the necessities of spiritual life. Only he has the words of eternal life. If we would have life everlasting, Life after this life, in the presence of our Creator, we must look to Christ as our Lord and provider. We feast at His table, 
He prepares and provides for us our spiritual nourishment. We won't find spiritual nourishment for our souls in science or in the best of literature or in the consumerism of our modern culture. We won't find spiritual nourishment for our souls in our careers, in our labor, or in worldly success. We definitely won't find nourishment for our souls in the false religions of the world. Only Christ has the words of eternal life that feed our souls and prepare them for everlasting life in his kingdom. We must feed on him and on his word. This is the Spirit speaking through the word that nourishes us spiritually. Christ said in verse 63, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. It's the Spirit working in the supper that nourishes us. Charles Spurgeon commented on the necessity of the Holy Spirit in our practice of communion. And he said this, There is the bread broken by God's servant. There is the wine decently handed round by the deacons of the church, and it is sipped by all. But mark you, however reverently it is performed, except the spirit of the living God breathes through the whole divine ordinance, the flesh, that is the mere embodiment of communion, will profit you nothing. You might sit at a thousand sacraments and you might be baptized in a myriad of pools, but all this would not avail one jot or tittle for your salvation unless you have the spirit that quickens you. Christ must be apprehended spiritually and by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is our spiritual food, and so we must seek the Holy Spirit if we would benefit from Christ in the meal, in our Bible reading, in baptism, in the fellowship of the saints. The true benefits of these things are not in the outward performance of them, but in the application of them to us by the Holy Spirit of God. Christ is our Lord and provider. He provides spiritually for our nourishment. Secondly, the Lord is one who is depended upon by those under his care. Just as the common person in the first century Roman Empire or in feudal Europe of the 16th and 17th centuries, they depended upon their Lord that they served. If you had any need, you, you went to your Lord and petitioned him for your need so too we are to appeal to Christ in dependence upon him in prayer. Philippians 4, 6 says, Be anxious for nothing but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. We must not seek to live the Christian life in our own strength. We don't have any strength. In every care, in every anxiety, in every weakness, in every need, we are to turn to God with supplication and with thanksgiving, depending upon Him, making our requests known to Him. Prayer is vitally important to the life of the Christian. It demonstrates our utter dependence upon God as our provider. The one who does not pray betrays that he is depending upon himself and his own strength rather than upon Christ. Prayer is an act of humility that reminds us that we are in need of his grace, of his mercy, of his compassion, of his power, his working on our behalf. I encourage you to seek the Lord in prayer. 
depend upon him as your Lord and provider. I encourage you to join us on Wednesday nights as we seek him together in prayer. It's always an encouragement to me to be gathered in the room and praying with other Christians. Even if you don't want to pray out loud, come and join us together. It will be a blessing to you, an encouragement. It will increase your love for a Lord who hears and who answers our prayers. Thirdly, Christ, as our Lord, offers protection to his people. A Lord would protect his servants and those who worked for him and and kept his fields. The Lord protects his people who depend upon him. And so as we depend upon Christ, he protects us. I just read Philippians 4, 6, but listen to how Philippians 4, 6 flows into 4, 7. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. We must depend upon Christ as our Lord, and when we do, he will stand guard over our hearts and our minds. He is our Lord protector. What a precious promise that is. Christ will guard your heart and your mind when you depend upon him. And how is he able to do so? He is able to guard us effectually because he is our Lord, which means he has authority. You have the words of eternal life, Peter cried. His words are powerful. They're life-giving. And not just for this life, but for the life to come. It is the word of Christ in the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3.15. The words of the greatest business guru on earth can't provide salvation. The words of the most learned scientist will not give you everlasting life. Only Christ has the words of everlasting life. Only Christ upholds all things by the word of his power in Hebrews 1.3. Only his words have the power to heal, the power to save, the power to sustain creation itself. Those are powerful words. Only Christ's words have the power to command not only the body, but the heart and the soul of man. John 13, 34, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Only his words can impart the hope of salvation to us. Only his words can delight our souls. Only his words can comfort us in our affliction. Only his words can provide a light in the darkness. These are words of one who has authority. Even the multitude recognized the authority of Christ's words. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word was with authority. In Luke 4, 32. Mark highlights the difference between Jesus' words and the words of the teachers of the law. They were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. The scribes were teaching They were teaching the the law of God from the Old Testament, but not with authority. Christ had authority because he is the word. He is the son of God. Christ commands, he sustains, and he gives life through his words. 
Christ is our Lord who supplies our need. He is our Lord upon whom we depend in prayer. He is our Lord who protects and guards our hearts and minds. And he is the Lord of glory. Peter writes in Acts 10.36 and says, He is the Lord of all. Indeed, there is no greater Lord, none with more authority, for he is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. Now, Peter continues his confession in verse 69, saying, Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. We have come to believe, Peter says. Last month, we spoke about what it means to believe, and we saw that the kind of belief spoken about in the Bible and in the creeds is not a mere intellectual agreement with a set of facts or statements, but rather, it is a belief that leads us to trust ourselves to Christ, to trust His finished work of atonement, His sacrificial death on the cross on our behalf, It's to trust his work and not your own, his righteousness and not your own. This is what it means to be a Christian, to trust yourself to Christ. And so the word creed comes from the Latin word credo, which means I believe. So the creed is a statement of Christian belief. It's what we trust ourselves to. Peter doesn't just say that they believe. He says they have become sure of what they believe. We've come to believe and know, certain that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. They know it to be true. He's talking about a process. They have come to believe. They have come to know. How did they arrive at this certainty, at this surety that Jesus was who he claimed to be? I want to look at a couple other passages that deal with this idea of knowing because I think they'll shed light on this for us. In 2 Peter verse, chapter 1, verse 5, we're told that giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge. So knowledge is added after faith. Now, this doesn't mean that we have a blind faith, but it does indicate that there is an order, uh, an order of, of progress, of maturity. We believe, we obey, and we come to know with certainty. It's a knowledge that comes by experience, the experience of obedience to our Lord. Virtue there in 1 Peter means upright living. In other words, you believe Christ, you live uprightly in obedience to his commands, and you gain an experiential knowledge of who he is. And when you do that, this knowledge is certain. In 1 John In John chapter 1, verse 10, we're told that Christ was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. Now here we can see that there are obviously those who had an experience of Jesus in the flesh and yet they did not know him as Lord. They didn't know him to be the Christ, the Messiah that had been promised throughout the Old Testament scriptures. We see here in our text in John 6 this morning, they knew Christ He had fed them, but when he said things that were hard, difficult to understand or accept, they turned away. Knowing is more than just experience. It's experience with discernment, with recognition. 
Likewise, in chapter 7 of John, Jesus says in verse 17, If anyone wills to do his will, that is the Father's will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. In other words, if you set your mind, you set your will to obey God, to obey the doctrines that Christ is teaching, then you will learn by experience that what he taught was from the Father, that it was biblical. You'll know by experience that, as it says in Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is most perfect and holy, reviving the soul and restoring the heart. The statutes of God can be trusted most surely. They make wise the simple and truth do impart. The precepts of God are right, giving the heart joy. Commands of the Lord are pure, lighting the eyes. The fear of the Lord is enduring forever. His judgments are true and right, making us wise. Let this be a test in your own life. If you find that the life of your soul begins to feel stale and lifeless, Ask yourself, have you strayed from obedience to the truths of the gospel? Have you strayed from obedience to Christ, from upright living? Or have you walked in obedience to Christ? And are you finding that his words do indeed give life to the soul, that they revive the heart? For Christians, obedience should always follow faith and lead to certainty of the lordship and the goodness of Christ But again, it is the Spirit that gives life. Our walking in obedience must be Spirit-empowered. Our certain knowledge of Christ as Lord must be Spirit-wrought knowledge. As John Calvin wrote, knowledge is connected with faith because we are certain and fully convinced of the truth of God, but not in the same manner as human sciences are learned, but when the Spirit seals it on our heart. It must be by the Spirit. If we, if we try to live in obedience apart from the Spirit, we come to depend upon ourselves and our own strength rather than upon Christ. So we must believe and we must obey in dependence upon His Spirit and His strength. And what is this certainty that they have, this knowledge of belief that they have come to? Peter says that the twelve are certain of two things. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. They're certain that he is the Christ. He is the anointed one, the Messiah of Old Testament prophecy. They didn't understand all that that meant, but they knew he was the one. He was the promised redeemer who had the words of life. There were many who claimed to be the Christ. But only Jesus had the words of eternal life. They were certain of this. But they had come to an even more startling conclusion. They had come to believe and to know that he was the Son of God. Now the creed says that we believe him to be the only Son of the Father. And it wasn't entirely unusual to see God as Father in Judaism. The first reference to God as Father is found in 1 Chronicles 29. This is near the end of David's life. He has gathered together all the materials necessary to build the temple. He has given his son Solomon instructions for its construction. The congregation of Israel has gathered together. They have brought offerings of gold and silver and precious jewels. Therefore, David blessed the Lord before all the assembly. And David said, 
Blessed are you, Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. This language is picked up and used throughout the Psalms and throughout the prophets of God as Father. It's not an unfamiliar concept to the Jews. In fact, they saw themselves as God's sons. But Jesus is the only son of the Father. In 1 John, he is called, in John 1, I'm sorry, he is called the only begotten of the Father. And in verse 18, he is said to be the only begotten son who is in the bosom of the Father. Now, these passages are telling us there is something special, something unique about the sonship of Jesus that's different than the sonship that we enjoy as God's creatures and as his redeemed people. This language of begotten sonship goes back to Psalm 2, which we read earlier this morning. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. This is a messianic psalm about Christ. So the idea that the Messiah, that the Christ would be the son of God, the only begotten son of the Father, is not entirely unique to the New Testament, but applying that to a flesh and blood individual was daring. And Peter says they're convinced that it is so. Jesus is this promised son. He is the son of God. What does it mean that Christ is the only begotten son of God? This language of begotten, we find it throughout the scriptures, especially when we come to any of the genealogies. Abraham begot Isaac, and Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Judah and his brethren. To beget means to bring forth, to to generate, to, to give life to. Only begotten is one word in the Greek. It's the word monogenes. Mono, of course, meaning one, and genus, meaning to generate, or the beginning, such as Genesis, the book of beginnings. So while we may be sons of God in a creaturely sense, Jesus is said to be the the alone, the only generated Son brought forth by the Father. And we confess that the Son is eternal, having no beginning, no end, and no procession of moments. In his flesh, of course, Jesus was conceived. He was born, he grew, he lived, he died, and he was resurrected, and that all happened in time. But that was his human nature. In his divine nature, he is eternal. He is in authority over time as its creator, existing apart from but inhabiting all of it simultaneously. We spoke about that concept last month when we considered God as the maker of heaven and earth. So how how can the eternal son be begotten? Well, the term used by the church fathers to speak of the of this is known as eternal generation, eternal generation of the Son. Now, Irenaeus, an early church father, warned us that we must be cautious when using this language. It is proper to speak this way because the Scripture speaks this way about Christ. But we need to understand that the Scripture is using human language to describe a divine being. And therefore, in speaking from the lesser to the greater, We need some caution. Herman Bovink, the Dutch theologian, says that just as the Bible speaks analogically of God's ear, God's eye and mouth, 
so human generation is an analogy, an image of the divine deed by which the Father gives the Son to have life in himself. So it's using human language, but we're not to think of it in exactly the same way. In the first place, the Son is begotten of the Father spiritually, not physically. He is the very essence of the Father. John chapter 10, verse 30, Christ declares to his disciples, I and my Father are one. They're completely, perfectly united. This is not simply to say that they're in agreement or of one mind. No, they are one. They, are, they share the very same essence, the very same being. The Son is not made of nothing ex nihilo the way the rest of creation was. He is from the very essence of the Father. God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. That's how the Nicene Creed describes it. But the beginning of the Son is eternal beginning. It happens in the ever-present reality of the life of God, not in a moment in time. The Son is said to have been with God in the beginning as the agent through whom all created things were made in John 1.3. He is said to be the word or the wisdom of God in John 1.1. He is the very truth of God in John 14.6. So let me ask you, was there ever a time when God was without his wisdom? No. Was there ever a time when God was without truth? No. If there was ever a time when the Son did not exist as the Son, then at that time God was without his wisdom and without his truth. If there was ever a time when the Son did not exist, then at that time God was not Father. And yet the scripture calls him the everlasting father. God has within himself all life and it is in his nature to generate. He begets everlastingly. And so the son is always begotten of the father. The eternal generation of the son is always complete. He is the son fully. And yet it is eternally ongoing, the Father giving life to the Son, always and forever sharing the same essence. Gregory of Nyssa, one of the Cappadocian fathers of the fourth century, wrote and said that Christ exists by generation indeed, but nevertheless, he never begins to exist. It is an eternal generation, begotten of the Father eternally. Now, this is a grand doctrine to consider, this eternal relation of the Father and the Son. But of what use is it to us? Well, to deny the eternal generation of the Son is to deny the eternal fatherhood of God. And therefore, to suggest that God underwent change at some point, that he became the Father. Well, this is to deny the doctrine of the immutability of God, the unchangeableness of God, the scripture clearly tells us that this doctrine of the immutable, unchanging nature of God is eminently important for us. It says in Malachi 3.6, For I am the Lord, I do not change. Therefore, you are not consumed. Because God does not change, we can be sure of his love to us unchangingly. 
James 1, 7 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Since God does not change, His good gifts are dependable. They're unchanging. They're steadfast. If God were to change, we could have no confidence of His redeeming love, no confidence in His forgiveness or His mercy or His compassion. The knowledge that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever comforts us in knowing that He loves us with an everlasting love, with no change, no chance that He might possibly change His heart or His mind concerning us. He has set His affection on us and loves us everlastingly. It will not change. I am the Lord. I do not change. Therefore, you are not consumed. So the doctrine of the eternal generation of the Son gives us an assurance that the love of God endures forever, first toward His eternally begotten Son, and secondly toward the people that He has redeemed in Christ. Further, it is the eternal nature of Christ as the Son of God that ultimately works for our good. Galatians 4, verses 4 through 7 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you were sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. See, God did not adopt Jesus when He was born and say, now he is my son. No, he sent his son to be born. His eternally begotten son was sent into the world. He was the son before he was sent to take on flesh. He eternally remains the son. And this eternal sonship lived out in the flesh, in the incarnation, is what makes our adoption possible. He is the son by nature. We are made sons by grace. Matthew Barrett writes in his recent work, Simply Trinity, and says, Apart from his eternal sonship, we have no hope that we might be adopted as sons and receive all the benefits of our union with the Son, Jesus Christ. See, our certain belief in the eternal sonship of Christ is the basis for our hope and enjoyment of the graces of adoption. Now, the grace of adoption by God through Jesus Christ found there in Galatians 4 means that when we are united to Christ by faith, by virtue of that union with Him, we become adopted sons of God. We have the Father's name put upon us. We receive His Spirit as a surety of our salvation. We have access to the throne of grace. We're enabled to cry, Abba, Father. We're pitied, protected, provided for and chastened, loved by God as by a father, never cast off, sealed for the day of redemption, and made heirs together with Christ of everlasting salvation in the eternal kingdom of his love. So the morning, this morning, as we partake of the Lord's Supper together and confess our common faith let us confess with joy and with thanksgiving our belief in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. Let's pray.